there. My name is Andrew Adams, and this is Don't You Dare Talk to Me. Um, so I just wanted to start out just by getting some stuff off my chest here. And this is probably, you know, going to date the episode a little bit. And it, it, it's completely unrelated as to what we're going to be talking about today. Um, but I just wanted to say, if you're in, alive in the year of 2021, and it's still in the midst of a global pandemic, and you're being asked to wear a mask in public or during like a social setting or whatever, just do it, please. It's not that big of a deal. And here's the thing, people, I've seen so many people just mistreat like service workers and people that are like, you know, just get on to them for not wearing one. And it's just fucking get over your petty beliefs for just one second and just do it. It's not that big of a deal. Here's the thing, man. I can guarantee you this. Nobody likes doing this. Nobody likes having to wear a mask in public or in social settings. I sure as shit don't. I don't like having to smell my fucking disgusting diarrhea breath for hours on end and wear this like uncomfortable mask. It sucks. I hate it. But at the same time, it's one of those things that we have to do to combat what's going on. And this is this goes beyond like, well, I don't, I don't give a shit what like political party that you stand with or whatever, or that the fact that you think it's unconstitutional or against your rights. It's not, man. It's just like one of those things that we have to do in order to conquer this because there's a fucking bigger problem out there of there being this big old virus and I don't give a shit what you think of it. It's just something that we have to do, okay? So wear a mask while you're in public or in like a social setting or whatever and stop being a fucking limp dick, moronic, inbred, dog molesting asshole and saying that you're not going to wear one because it's against your rights or it's unconstitutional. I don't give a shit, man. And I can tell you this. You're an embarrassment to, like, your family, your friends, your significant other. They're embarrassed by you every time you go on your big, long rant about how you're not going to wear one because you're not a conformist or whatever. Just get over yourself, please. And if you, if you like, hate me so much for what I'm saying right now and you want to come and beat me up or kill me or whatever, fucking wear a mask while you're doing it, okay? So anyway, today... Don't you dare talk to me about Chester Wheeler Campbell, the infamous Detroit hitman. All right, so this guy, he is quite the character, and I'm amazed that nobody has, like, you know, this isn't, like, more well-known or whatever. Um, and the, All right, so if you're not, like, if you're familiar with, like, you know, old, like, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, like, you know, crime and everything, it was fucking wild back then, man, and we're, I'm going to kind of paint a picture for you here in a second. But um, in particular, the guy that we're talking about today, Chester Wheeler Campbell, he's been described as being, like, the John Wick of the Detroit mob, or, like, the 007 of the Detroit mob. So, like, if you're not familiar, like, the, the John Wick movies with, like, Keanu Reeves, how he's, like, this, like, crazy cool over-the-top assassin or kind of like this shadowy figure this guy's like Chester Wheeler Campbell he was real life he was real life John Wick and it was fucking wild so and this is around like he was active primarily in like you know between like the the 60s up till the 80s and everything and this guy he was very methodical he was lethal and on top of it all he was a ladies man the guy was a total mac so I feel like that's where the the 007 parallel sets up Anyway, so let's set the scene here before we get into this character, just to kind of paint a picture of like what was going on back then. So we're setting the scene. This is Detroit, 1950s. The populace is when like the population had peaked at about 1.85 million or 1.85 million. Um, and this was primarily because at the time, um, a lot of uh, motor companies were moving into Detroit in order to kind of like, you know, up their business and everything with these factories. Um, so when I say that, like motor companies, the big boys at the time being like uh, Ford, General Motors, Chrysler, stuff like that. So there was tons of jobs being offered. So everyone started flocking to Detroit because that was like where like, you know, work was headed and everything. 
And that's also, too, if you're not familiar, that's how it got its uh, nickname, Motor City, um, would be just because of all these motor companies moving in and kind of staking up business and everything. And also, too, on top of this, this, like, you know, as this kind of came in and, like, we started to get this big old melting pot in Detroit, uh, that's when tensions were super high at the time. Um, and there was, like, tons and tons of strikes within these factories um, because, like, white people didn't want uh, black people to be working side by side. It was fucking racist. And that's a good segue here, too, because racial tensions in that time, just in the 1950s alone in America, were fucking off the charts. But Detroit especially so. So there was tons of riots back then, um, just due to like, you know, that were started due to like the rampant racism and everything that was, you know, all these very vile injustices that were going on at the time. And then you got like the middle-class whites, uh, were starting to flee to, uh, suburbs. They were starting to leave the city and move into suburbs. That's kind of the, um, if you're not familiar, the, the white flight, uh, type deal that was going on there. Um, so, and I feel like I found this quote here, um, that kind of said it best or kind of like put it the best into perspective. Um, it was, uh, Reverend Charles Williams, II. he was the leader of the, uh, national action, um, network at the time. Um, so he said, quote, there's a sincere in-depth hate folks in the city have been taught to not trust those in the suburbs. Folks in the suburbs don't trust those in the city. So you can see that there is like, you know, this tension that you could just cut with a butter knife. Like it was just like, it was there, you know, it was so thick. Anyway, we get this as we kind of like, you know, move along to, uh, apart from all this, you know, this like uh, big population and all these like racial tensions and everything, there was a boatload of corruption and leadership too. Um, there was like a lot of leaders and mayors and stuff and uh, political figures that kind of came in and they were making these false promises of like expanding the city, you know, bettering the city in these different ways. Um, but it never came to fruition. So it's just kind of like all these empty promises. Plus, too, just kind of like, you know, put it into perspective here. This goes back before the 1950s around like the um, like in the 30s. There is a one mayor uh, I just want to call out of being Charles E. Bowles. Um, he was, he was backed by the KKK. So if that says anything about how fucking corrupt this place was, it was, you know, it was in a bad place from the start. Luckily, he only served about, uh, seven months before people started, like, you know, calling for him to be removed. But this kind of set the groundwork of how there was, like, you know, gonna be a lot of, a lot of, like, you know, crime and everything of just, like, you know, spiking at the time. Because when he was removed from this, there was a big spike in crime following it. Um, and then, too, like, this guy, I forgot to mention, the Charles E. Bow guy that that dipshit he had underworld ties too so this was not he's a very corrupt figure being placed in a position of power pretty quickly and that just kind of led to a lot of other shit um that just kind of like started to it was just kind of like a the snowball effect i guess you could say starting out there um and this like what i'm talking about too between like the um the, like the 60s and 70s and up on upward this was like before the quote-unquote bad crime times like that was um between like 1978 and 1990 uh just when like you know the, the city was pretty much just like it was just all types of you know rampant crime and drugs and everything so and that's that's too like when people uh, around this time like as the the kind of progressed and everything into the 60s and 70s this is when people started to leave Detroit um, because that's when automation started to come into play in these factories so a lot of these businesses had to cut out a lot of like the uh, the manpower work so like these car companies and everything uh, they went to automation which is like do it having the the machines make the cars instead of people make the cars. And that put a lot of people out of work. Um, and then, too, the fact that, like, all the jobs that were in the city were based primarily around uh, these motor companies. So it was just kind of like it was a total shit show. 
So as people started to flee Detroit because they didn't really see any future here, this is when the dope dealers started taking over. A lot of drug dealers saw this as being potential to start making some good money off of people who were like, you know, hard up and wanting kind of a bit of an escape here. Um, plus two, like, you know, the, the back then the, the justice system was not all that it is, you know, today. I don't know if that's much of a statement, but it was just like one of those things where it was, you know, it was just like bad on all sides. And this really set the framework for a lot of like criminal organizations to move in and kind of capitalize on that. So, and this is too, this is like when the game changed. So back then, like as these like criminal organizations started to move in and everything, it was originally like, you know, a lot of petty crimes, a lot of gangbanging and stuff like that. But then as like, you know, the drug trade started to come into play, that's when these like criminal organizations realized, oh buddy, we can make a boatload of dough just like, you know, by moving dope and whatever. Um, so the gangbanging kind of took a back seat. Um, and when you could kind of make, when you realize that like you could make way more money selling, you know, stuff like, I don't know, heroin. So with the drug trade as, you know, just kind of like, you know, I don't know like what, or what kind of like, you know, you're coming from or what kind of listener you are, but with the drug trade, you're going to need enforcers and you're going to need like, you know, people to kind of protect your product and also to protect your interests. And that's where enforcers and hitmen come into play. Enter Chester Wheeler Campbell. This guy is a scary motherfucker. <laughs> and I'll probably say that a lot because as I was reading about this guy and everything, not a lot, not a lot out there um, about this guy. So it kind of took, I, I had to kind of had to piece it together just through like, you know, old newspaper stuff and articles and um, yeah, it was just, you know, he's, this guy's a complete enigma. So I don't know if that's why he's not more, you know, prominently known. I don't know. I remember, like, it was back when the, the John Wick 3 movie came out. Like, that's when he was mentioned in, like, an article when someone was talking about that. And that's when I first came online with him. Uh, and I was just like, you know, I started the podcast. And I was like, oh, shit, I got to totally talk about this guy. Anyway, enter Chester Wheeler Campbell, a.k.a. the Angel of Death, a.k.a. Dr. Death, a.k.a. the Black Hand, a.k.a. the Undertaker. I'm not just making that shit up. Those were his actual kind of like, you know, he was known on the streets as this. Like, if you're known as Dr. Death, you are, you know this guy means business. Like, he is not something, someone that you want to fuck around with. So anyway, this, he was known like into just kind of like, you know, kind of paint a picture of this guy as well. He was like known to dress like all in black. So that just made him a very sinister and shadowy figure just to start off with. Um... So this guy, he was just like his reputation preceded him wherever he went. Um, he, the federal, like the Fed, suspected that he had committed at least fifty killings, or is at least tied to fifty um, gangland killings. Um, so he was first incarcerated at fifteen in nineteen forty-six for burglary, um, and then when he was released in nineteen fifty-five, um, later or later on, he was in nineteen. Excuse me, I'm getting all over myself here. In 1955, he was charged with a second-degree murder, um, and then from that, he served 13 years. So in that time, he kind of, like, took the time to kind of, like, you know, make himself more knowledgeable and everything, and this this guy is smart. Like, he is, he is a very, like, you know, he's not your regular, like, street thug or whatever you want to fucking call it. He is, he's a very, like, charming and very, you know, methodical motherfucker that, like, knew how to get things done. So during that time, he was kind of educating himself. And then in 1968, that's when he, he was released from prison. And then he started really making a name for himself. 
So, he started working as a freelance hitman right out of the gate. So, even after, like, even, like, not just in Detroit, he was so good at his trade of being a hitman that he started doing, like, out-of-state jobs for criminal organizations. And his fee at the time was, like, topping it out at, like, $15,000 for a job. And that might not sound like a lot, but that was, like, crazy money for that kind of work. And then just to kind of put it into perspective um, how much money that is, like today with inflation, um, just based off that, it's like over 100K right there. It's like at 168, uh, or 168,000 and some change. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anyway, so this guy, he was just like, a, he was connected to all these different types of gangland murders and he was a person of interest in like over 50 of them. And, like, apart from Detroit, he was pulling jobs in, like, in like connections in New York, California, Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio. He was going all over the country working for these, like, you know, these different uh, criminal organizations. And a lot of these connections were made from him, like, coming out of prison. So he was not only hired by, like, the, um, the African-American drug kings at the time, but also, too, he was being hired by the Italian mob, which was kind of out there because the Italian mob was known to, like, not like black people that much. They didn't like, you know, having to deal with anything like that. It was a lot of, a lot of racism back then. Probably still is today. I don't really pay that much attention. <laughs> but anyway, it was, more, it was more, like, prominent back then, you know what I mean? So the retire, like just to kind of like, you know, paint a better picture here as to Chester Wheeler Campbell or how scary this guy is. This was from uh, retired FBI agent Mike Carone. Um, he was the, he was one of the ones that helped in the 1987 arrest of Campbell. Um, but we'll be kind of coming back to that. But uh, Mike Carone, he uh, said it best, honestly. He said, quote, Chester was a very, very dangerous man. We heard he was a trigger man on numerous slangs. He put the fear of God into some very tough, scary people. And that speaks to the kind of underworld figure he was around here. His reputation preceded him wherever he went. Yeah, ditto to that, man. And then uh, you got the one of the former members of the local mafia at the time. Uh, the name was redacted. But the he said that one of these local uh, former members, he said, that was one bad dude. <laughs> yeah, you can say that again. That was one bad dude. He got all the top assignments and was very reliable. If you were on the wrong side of any major players in the city and you saw Chester at your doorstep, you knew he wasn't there to sell you encyclopedias. <laughs> oh, buddy. <laughs> I love that quote so much. Yeah, I wouldn't think I wouldn't think, you know, some some shadowy figure. That'd be actually kind of funny. You see like, you know, this really mysterious looking, you know, figure and everything's like black trench coat and everything and black hat and he's walking up and he goes, "Hello, would you like to buy this encyclopedia? <laughs> I have a wide range of encyclopedias for you to choose from." And then he shoots you in the face. <laughs> anyway, but he was a bad dude for sure. Um, he was a murder savant, so it wasn't. It spanned all types of methods. I'm talking shooting, stabbing, stranglings, everything, man. He was he was like in the game for sure. And I'm not even getting to like the scary parts as to how you know kind of kind of calculated this guy could be. So, but he as I said before, he wasn't your regular gangster. He was a very cultured dude. Um, so he really like you, he would always be seen frequenting like plays, operas, um, like museums, all types of stuff. And then he would also read at a near obsessive level. Like he would read all types of stuff. He would study foreign languages. So he obviously saw that there was a concept of like knowing that knowledge is power. And he was trying to, you know, use that to the best of his abilities, which that's, that's kind of admirable. You know, if you want to, if you want to become more dangerous, start studying super hard and know everything about everything. If you can, that's, 
That's all you got to do. And also, too, he was a total Mac. Like, he loved the ladies. He was he had a whole string of girlfriends. He had a common-law wife, um, which ironically was uh, one of the co-owners of a... Oh, shit. I didn't write down the name. Fuck. But it was like one of his common-law wife at the time. He was She owned and operated a uh, funeral home, which was really fitting for uh, the guy known as Dr. Death. <laughs> Yeah, man, or the angel of death. That seemed that seemed to be more frequent in the articles that I knew or that I was reading about. Anyway, he was a total Mac, but he apart from his common law wife, he had like a series of various girlfriends, and I could see that's kind of like where that 007 parallel comes up again. And this was so we kind of like tiptoe in from like you know his time of release of 1968 into the early 70s. This was when he was in his heyday. This was like when he was really making some moves, and he also had a pretty good string of good luck, honestly. Um, so he had dodged a pair of like top priority government assaults of them trying to like pinch him on these, uh, previous like murder, um, charges and everything. Uh, but all those fell flat and they failed to nab him obviously. And then it was like 1971. Uh, there was a, ch- there was a case where he was charged with the intent to murder, but a star witness in, uh, the, or he was, excuse me, he was charged with the intent to murder a star witness in one of the drug trial or drug trials that he was the defendant in. But the charges, they were dropped before the trial began, mysteriously. Um, so, and then, uh, this was, this one was kind of Breaking Bad style, man. Like, uh, so in 19, this was like, um, a couple of years after. So this was kind of between 1972 into 1973. He was charged with the murder of Roy J. Parsons, along with another dude here. Oh man, what was his name? Anyway, but he was one of the main dudes, um, with being like, you know, being charged with the murder of Roy J. Roy J. Parsons. And one of the star witnesses there was James Watusi Slim Newton. I don't even know if I said that right, but I have a reputation of not saying names right. So that's what I do best. But James, uh, James Newton there, he was testifying for immunity. Um, to, to, he was trying to testify against Campbell uh, in order to gain immunity on these charges. But um, the relation there for James Newton um, and Ro- or Chester Campbell, he was a one-time confidant and business partner of um, the two. So, And then he, like, um, Newton claimed that uh, Chester had offered him $500 to arrange a Parsons murder. Um, and he was also, too, he was the driver, um, including uh, Donald Johnson, Charles P. Lucas. Um, they were also present in the car, along with Parson and Campbell. Um, and Newton claimed that he didn't see who pulled the trigger on Parsons. So all this kind of, all that, you know, testif- or all that testimony and stuff got thrown out. And then um, <laughs> what sucks, too, was he was accused of perjury um, because he wasn't able to pull through with them. But poor James Newton, uh, he uh, wound up mysteriously being executed uh, in the protection wing of a maximum security federal prison in Ohio, which resulted in, what do you know, all the charges being dropped against Campbell. So he kind of got away with that one scot-free. And this is another thing, too, about Chester Campbell was he was a very well-connected and very kind of like, you know, he could be very manipulative or very convincing of getting others to kind of do the work for him. Um, but he was also known of getting his hands dirty, but he was like, he was like one of those very influential characters that could kind of like, you know, get persuade people or get them on his side. So he was, he had a very good talent for that. So in late 1973, um, this is like around that time after he had got out of this, um, in 1973, he started doing business with Frank Usher and Harold Morton. 
Now I could do an entire like you know episode on uh, Frank Usher or Frank Usher. That dude has a big old legacy. Um, but these guys, they were the ones. They were these two big up and coming heroin dealers uh, from the East Side at the time. And these guys, they were trying to like they started. They were actually the ones that started uh, the Murder Row gang, which was a offshoot of the um, the Jack Brothers Mafia at the time. I forget what it was called. No, it wasn't them. But he was like, I know that. Um, that Frank Usher, he was like under, uh, or kind of like, he was kind of, um, oh shoot. What's the word? Uh, when you're like the student, I don't know, but like the Jack brothers kind of taught him everything about how to operate the underworld. Anyway, I'm getting off topic here. So these heads of the murder row gang here, they were like the biggest drug operation in the entire state of Michigan at the time. And that was for a solid three or four years running. So the murder row gang was like, not something you'd want to trifle with. And then, like, when Campbell came on the scene, he quickly became their in-house enforcer because these dudes obviously saw that this guy had a talent for being, like, you know, being able to put in some work <laughs> when it came to, you know, working as a hitman and enforcer, especially when it came to in-house. And then, uh, like, following this, too, just kind of, like, you know, touch on that before I move on, like, the Murder Row gang, they kind of, like, imploded a little bit with all the shit that went on, um, like, due to internal squabbles. And this was, like, after... Um, that Campbell got pinched and everything. So it was just, it was a whole big mess. Anyway, so he worked regularly as like a hitman and enforcer for them, you know, pretty steadily throughout, you know, the 70s and everything. But then until February 6, 1975 at Kego Harbor at 3.30 a.m. So this was when Campbell, he ended up sideswiping a police car, uh, which resulted in a high-speed chase. And then this chase ended with Campbell running off the cop car or running the cop car off of the road. And then it was only like a couple of miles down the way he was um, apprehended. So they got him and they like when they pulled him over and everything, they uh, searched his car. And here is what they found. I made a nice little list for you. So they found in Chester Wheeler Campbell's car. Loaded two-shot 32 caliber Derringer, a loaded Colt Python 357 Magnum revolver, loaded 25 caliber semi-auto pistol with a silencer, loaded 22 caliber revolver, loaded 38 caliber revolver, uh, loaded pump-action shotgun, loaded 45 caliber semi-auto pistol, um, cash money orders totaling uh, $10,791, plastic bag with white powder, uh, business envelope with a smaller envelope inside containing heroin, uh, two plastic bags containing marijuana, a large plastic bag with blasting caps and unidentified explosive devices. Got to turn the page here. It keeps going. A flare gun and rounds, a video camera with accessories, a portable police scanner, a telescope, uh, a Statue of Liberty knife, um, and a pen, a ballpoint pen measuring at about 5.2 inches that fired a 22 caliber uh, bullet. So he had he had a bullet like pen. That thing's crazy, man. So that's like your last resort of being able to have like, and he just had it there in his shirt pocket. You know, you never know what you you like, be afraid of pens. If that was back in the seventies, God knows what, you know, I didn't really look too far into that. If it was like a homemade deal or if it was like an actual manufactured weapon beats the heck out of me, but that's, that's some 007 shit right there. All right. So on top of this too, 
And uh, apart from all this, you know, whole arsenal of weaponry and everything and drugs, he also had um, notebooks, a black notebook, one of the black notebooks here that he had. It contained numerous names and addresses of over 300 law enforcement and government officials, underworld figures, um, and both past and potential hits. Um, or supposedly, that was just kind of like the, what the authorities had drawn conclusions to as to, you know, the collection of all this data. But it was a fucking hit list. There was literally, as well as like names and daily habits of several recent murder victims. So it was pretty much, you know, cut and dry that it was. And also, along with these notebooks, he also had heaps of photocopy classified police documents. That's that's the one part that just beats the living fuck out of me is just how he was able to get his hands on all this crap. So essentially, so this is what was going on. Chester Wheeler Campbell, he was he had been amassing all this data on everyone and anyone remotely involved in the criminal underworld of both Detroit and, you know, beyond that along along the rest of the country. So this was like a freaking gold mine for the police at the time of being able to get their hands on this. It was crazy. And then this was not just like one notebook. He didn't just have like one little black book. He had, he kept dozens of notebooks, tons with like tons of information, like uh, with mobsters, motorcycle clubs, pimps, pushers, hookers, hitmen, everything uh, like plate numbers, like locations. Um, shit. What else here? We got notes that contain locations of witnesses, dealers, safe houses, and even the details for the layouts of law enforcement officials, like the homes for law enforcement officials. So this guy, he knew what he was doing. He like, it was fucking scary, man. This is, this is like some next level stuff, honestly, which the cops, um, were on like, and also too, within these notebooks, there was also like cops that were on Kingpin's, uh, like uh, drug Kingpin's payroll. So that was another thing too, of kind of revealing how much corruption was going on at the time. Um, and there was also within these notebooks details of unsolved murders uh, and drug cases. So he was keeping tabs on that to kind of like, you know, make sure he also he kept like tabs on his own arrest record. So he kept. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know what that is. If he's just he was a very organized fellow. He's just like, I, I just like to have everything written down. It just, you know, it gives me peace of mind and it helps me remember, you know, I, I have so much on my plate as it is. I got a lot of killing to do. A lot of people trying to kill me. So I, I just like, you know, let the notebooks do the thinking sometimes. <laughs> so. Anyway, this one of the um, many one of like the many notebooks um, had details of the assistant prosecutor uh, named L. Brooks Patterson. Um, so he was the assistant prosecutor at the time. Um, and he was spe like, that's where, like, when they saw this, when the police saw this, they started to speculate that's, oh, yeah, this has got to be a hit list. He's going after the prosecutor. So they had to put extra security on this assistant prosecutor in order to kind of like, you know, make sure everything was, you know, that he wasn't going to get murdered. You know what I mean? So you're probably thinking, too, how did he get these documents? So, all right, so he, he somehow had access to uh, Michigan's Law Enforcement Information Network System, or L-E-I-N, or LEAN, or what, however it's pronounced. I wasn't able to get that. So he had access to this in some way. And this Law Enforcement Information Network System, um, this was used to, like, this, it was, like, established back in 67, but it was used to kind of share information between departments. Um, and then they were able to, like, you know, how he was able to get it, that's where you enter a very super big gray area. So somehow either Campbell or one of his associates or, like, you know, one of the drug kingpins or something had an inside man uh, who had access to this system and was 
was able to, you know, kind of leak the documents to him, but he was primarily using it. He was using it to, um, kind of correlate where, like which of these, like, you know, names in the book had like certain vehicle numbers or license plate numbers and everything. So uh, after all this mess, after the cops find all this, he was, you know, jailed for uh, guns and narcotics possession and he was put in prison. But luckily he was able to get out of prison in 1984. Wow. Tough sentence, right? So 75 to 84 there. And when he got out, uh, the, this was like when the, like at this time, the murder row gang had kind of like, you know, become dormant or they weren't as active anymore. Um, that, as I mentioned, like they had that whole big blow up and everything internally that just kind of like, you know, led to its destruction. But that's, you know, the murder row gang was kind of on the off, but that didn't stop Chester, uh, Chester Campbell at all. He continued working as a hired gun. He was like a free, he was back to being a freelance hitman, uh, just for these various criminal organizations. So it didn't really, I didn't really get a lot of information as to what he was up to at the time. But then I found uh, this one 1985 incident where he survived a hit on himself. Um, so it was like in 1985, uh, he was reading a newspaper at this auto shop, like at this um, vehicle you know, shop or whatever. And this gunman bursts in and he starts shooting at Campbell. And he gets him in, uh, like three times in the leg and then a bullet that grazed his head. So he was like, he was able to, he luckily like, you know, he survived this, you know, this hit or whatever. And he entered into a, an 11 hour operation. Um, and then after he was out of that, uh, one, I, this is hilarious. They like one of the, the reporters or whatever, like asked him, um, like what, like about the incident or whatever. And all he said was, I had, and I got nothing newsworthy to say. <laughs> so, oh my God, this guy's a cold motherfucker. Like he knew, he knew exactly what he was doing, man. So this, and then we kind of fast forward a couple of years here, um, to, uh, 1987. So just, just two years later after, after this, you know, almost getting murdered in an auto shop. So it was like a 1987, he had a near identical incident to the one that he got busted for back in 75. Um, so it was just a like typical roadside stop that resulted in like, you know, a squabble with the cops. And then when they kind of like, you know, had him arrested and everything, they like searched his vehicle again, to which they found uh, several firearms. I'm not going to go through the whole list again, but several firearms, a suitcase full of drugs, and then another black notebook with tons of names and everything. So due to this charge, he ended up getting life for that one. So that was that was what finally put him away was just a simple roadside stop. And I guess that's all it takes. You know, it's just one little slip up and you're gone. But you get the, you know, he's in prison all that time and nothing really, couldn't really find, dig up anything significant as to his time in incarceration. But then in May 2001, uh, he was, you know, at this whole time, he was stricken with hepatitis C and he had, uh, at age 71, he passed away. Uh, he died in Rochester, Minnesota prison hospital. Um, and that was, you know, that's the, the quick little tale of Chester Wheeler Campbell. Crazy ass story, man. It's just one of those things in history that you kind of overlook, but hopefully you're able to, you know, be like, whoa, that was a kind of an interesting story. Ha <laughs> ha. That was, you know, I, I was able to kill 30 minutes of my time just like me. But yeah, man, that's probably, that's pretty much all I got for today. So thank you, Detroit Free Press. That was a, you know, definitely a helpful one in getting this put together because there was nothing there. You look, look up on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, like anything like that. You saw, I kind of had to do, and there was also two, there was like one, um, there was just like books and stuff, but they were like, Hey, pay us money. And I was like, ha ha, little do you know, I have no money. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, 
That's my time for today, listener. If you took the time to listen to all this today, I really appreciate you, man. You're the one that I do this for, um, and I'm going to keep doing it for you. Uh, you know, hopefully you're you're finding some type of enjoyment out of this, or maybe you just listen to this as like your your cringe videos or whatever that you're like, oh, at least I'm not as fucking terrible or dorky as this guy. <laughs> I also want to give a shout out or a thank you to uh, my producers, uh, Will Fisher, Noah Adams. Uh, Will was the guy that made the music at the beginning there. Noah was the one that keeps me going here with, you know, the stuff. <laughs> anyway, that's my time. I'll catch you next time, listener. Please, for the love of Christ, wear a mask. And thanks for listening. Good listening on you. Bye-bye. Hey, listener. I just wanted to let you know, if you are hearing this and you listened all the way to the end of the video, super thank you for doing that. It means so much to me. Like, I know that it might just sounds like I'm saying that, but deep down, it, it really touches me that you're able to listen to something that I'm creating. And if you want to help me out, um, go on to the Apple Podcasts uh, icon if you have an iPhone. Uh, it's just go on there. It's a purple app. It's already pre-installed. And if you just want to drop me a rating and a review, um, it really helps with making sure that my uh, podcaster, Don't You Dare Talk To Me, gets driven up the charts. Again, thanks for listening, and I'm going to keep putting these out just for you, man.